A few weeks ago, my daughter brought home an assignment in her take-home folder, but this assignment was actually for me. Well, it was ostensibly for her, but the assignment was, could she please handcraft 24 Valentines, one for each student in her class? She's in kindergarten, and the teacher wrote, correctly so, that this would be a great opportunity for her to practice cutting and writing letters. And Now, I am lucky in that my child is into this kind of thing, and also, I love making paper valentines, so I had already set up the craft table and was already gonna make her make valentines, so I was kind of buoyed by this assignment. We made it through about seven before she lost steam, um, but I am glad to report that this morning all 24 valentines, including an extra 25th because a new student was added to the class yesterday, did make it to school. Now, Part of the reason I love paper valentines is that my mother, who is an artist, marked Valentine's Day every year by making me an elaborate paper valentine of some kind. Whether it had sort of different folds and pop-ups and things coming out of it, or multiple colors or collage. One year she hung hearts from the ceiling outside of my room that had quotes from Shakespeare play I was in. So I have always seen Valentine's Day as that kind of expression of love. And of course, these Valentines now only exist in memory between her and me. There was no Instagram back then. There was no social media that she would feel the urge to post to to prove that she was such a great mom. It was really between her and me, um, this expression of love. And of course, I did love the experience in the classroom, right? I don't know, I hope that many of you had this same experience in elementary school, where you had like a box, like I remember making a shoe box, like covering it with tissue paper, and then there's that like frenzy where everybody runs around the room and like puts all the Valentines into the little boxes, and then later you get to open it up and it's kind of like overflowing with all the, yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. I didn't quite realize that this was still a thing, in elementary school, um, although the last time I spent a lot of time in an elementary school before my children were born, um, I was wearing clothes like this a lot of the time because I was a school chaplain at an Episcopal school. Now, a chaplain is a person who holds a ministerial role at an institution that is not necessarily gathered for the purpose of worship or the sole purpose of worship but it's an institution that acknowledges that by very nature of what they do, they encounter questions of what we called ultimate concern. So why am I here? What is my purpose? What is God like? What happens after I die? And so that's why you find chaplains in places like hospitals and prisons and the military and Episcopal schools. What I soon discovered, I should say I took this job because I was working already at a youth nonprofit and I thought, well, this will give me a little more money and I thought, I've taught Sunday school before, how hard could it be? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I learned a lot of things as a chaplain. Um, and one of my roles, well, what I really discovered was that my main role there was around death. 
was around grief and loss and death. Um, at many Episcopal schools, most of the students there are not Episcopalian, many are not religious, um, and my role really, to many people I'm sure, seemed quite superfluous and odd at a school until there was a death. And then suddenly, as people were scrambling to make meaning, even if they didn't quite like the meaning I made of it, thank goodness there was somebody there who had some kind of authority to make some meaning or some sense of even how to organize a service. My other role there was to kind of introduce and maintain the Episcopal identity uh, for students in the hopes that I think not, not so much for making little Episcopalians, but more that uh, if, if any of these students in the rest of their life ever wandered, God helped them into an Episcopal church, they might feel some sense of familiarity or at least know what to do with those books, things like that. So I, I ran a chapel twice a week uh, for the elementary school students, which was basically morning prayer with a lot more singing. So it was lovely. There was one year, when I was lower school chaplain, when we had this same overlapping of holidays that we do today. And a teacher approached me and asked, couldn't we maybe just do Ash Wednesday on Thursday <laughs> instead? Because it really was gonna kind of like ruin the vibe of the, of the Valentine's party. We did Ash Wednesday on Wednesday. Then later, when I was the high school chaplain, I had a high school teacher come to me to give me some feedback on chapel. And this was after we had had Ash Wednesday chapel. Now, the way we kind of threaded the needle in the high school, which is a time, of course, when children are questioning everything in their lives, including God and faith, and God is usually a stand-in for their parents at that point, so look out, God. And the way we would thread the needle there to be inclusive, but also to hold on and raise up the Episcopal identity, one of the ways we did was we sang out of the blue hymnal. And um, for Ash Wednesday, we would usually sing Amazing Grace. Now, Amazing Grace is like kind of a winner, right? Because even if you're not Christian, you generally have heard it, you've been exposed to it, and a lot of people find a lot of comfort in it, whether or not they are feeling the theology about it. Well, after chapel, um, a teacher came to me, a friend, and said that he really wasn't so sure about this choice of music um, because he was worried about one of the lyrics. And he said it was the word wretch, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yes, and he was just like, that word just seems kind of harsh. Um, especially, you know, students are under a lot of pressure and they're feeling really badly about themselves, many of them, and just, can't we just use another word? <laughs> and I thought, this person has kind of missed the whole point of the song. <laughs> you know, which is, of course, that who among us has not been a wretch <laughs> or has felt wretched? And of course, the whole point, right, is that through the grace of God, we are not stuck in that wretched place. And that even if we are a wretch or a wretch to other people, that we can come back to God and God will still be with us and still love us and we can try again.
And I think that is a little bit of what's going on in today's gospel, which always has struck me as such a strange gospel, because of course, on the very day um, that most of us have to sort of admit to the public world our religious practice and faith by literally wearing it on our foreheads, the gospel tells us to not look like we are being pious, which is very confusing. <laughs> I think the, the way that I understand it, especially after having had to explain it for so many years to high school students, is that you don't need to perform for God. You don't have to show God how good you are. That that sense of performing how good we are at being Christians or at being Valentine givers, we don't have to perform that for God. And there is a kind of liberation in that. We are not stuck in whatever particular frozen image we had of ourselves. We're not stuck in the last post we made with God. God sees us all the way through. The presence of God is always there. What's hard for us is to trust in that presence and in that steadfast love. I think that too, as we come into this season of Lent and we of course are thinking today, especially about our mortality that oftentimes, and when I was younger, I definitely found this day very scary um, to think about mortality that way. But this year when I read the reading and I was thinking about Amazing Grace and I was thinking about the gospel, I was thinking, what a relief. We are not stuck in this particular life that is so challenging. We're not stuck in these bodies that may disobey us which become frail. This is not the end. We're not stuck here. That God's love is so eternal that it will be with us. God's presence, God's love will be with us no matter where we are, no matter what we look like, no matter what our bodies are doing, no matter how pious we are this year, that God is still present and God is still there. Of course, that does not mean that death it's super easy to handle, especially when it's us who are left living when people we love have gone on to death. And so I think it makes it even harder to remember that steadfast love in those moments, and yet even more important. We had a teacher die while I was chaplain at the school very suddenly, and that moment, among every other moment, meeting with students to light a candle for their pet who had passed on, being at the deathbed of a grandparent for a family that had no religious identity but still could receive calm through Psalm 23, it was incredibly meaningful to be able to be with people in the presence of that mortality to be with a community. And that is what we have together today and throughout Lent, to know that we can be together to remind each other about the presence of God. So here I am again in this outfit, talking about ashes and Ash Wednesday. And 
I will tell you that I came to much of my theology through being formed through those times, those times of death and grief. And having to hold on to that steadfast love in, in those times, especially looking down at the communion rail of upturned faces of children who were coming to get ashes on their forehead, each one of whom I had to remind that they were dust and to dust they should return. I think that with God's help and with the help of each other, we can remember that steadfast love. We can see our wretchedness and our mortality too as a momentary blip in our feed of our time with God in which God is always with us. And when that day of glory comes, my friends, every single person's mailbox is going to be overflowing with heavenly valentines. Amen.